This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the head of creative and marketing here. I'm happy to introduce you to our new CEO, Matt Trudeau. Matt recently joined the company. Debating about when we should have Matt on, we could have done a little bit earlier and had you been extremely green in the horn, Matt. We could have waited a little bit longer and had you been a seasoned carbon removal veteran, salty and grizzled. And I think we, we chose somewhere in between. So I'm liking this exact moment in time to do this on September 12th. Good to finally have you here. Thanks, Ross. Great to be here. And after a little more than three months, I do feel kind of grizzled and seasoned. Already, you already have the thousand-yard stare. It's 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 pretty intense, both inside and outside Nori in the industry. I I when I interview people for for jobs at Nori, the both the threat and the encouragement to work at Nori is that it is a place that is intellectually very demanding. There's a lot of uncertainty. To the right kind of person, that's a lot of fun. It seems like to you that was a fun offer, and now you're you're seeing just how chaotic and difficult working in a new industry like this is. Although you've also done that for other industries too, so maybe maybe you're just used to this, and this is just normal. Well, it's it's too late to go back now, isn't it? Don't say that. Would you you wouldn't do that though? <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, it's been great. No, it's the the first three months have been a tremendous amount of fun. It's been great getting to know the team, learning about the industry, fascinating, really intellectually interesting challenges, opportunity. And you're right. It is one of the things that attracted me to Nori and to this industry, the the, car, the voluntary carbon markets is that it, it looks and feels a lot like other things that I've done in the past in terms of this the state of the market. And if I reflect back on my career and look at the, the time and places that I've had the most enjoyment and, and probably the most success, it's in the early stages of the formation of a new market where things are starting to coalesce. You've, you've got some of the foundational infrastructure in place. There, there's some interesting commercial players and and things are starting to take shape, but the, the winners haven't been decided yet. The market hasn't reached breakout yet, and things are still evolving very quickly. So you have to be nimble to be able to participate. And, and so that's all what attracted me about Nori and the industry. And in the three months that I've been here, both Nori and the industry have delivered on, on all of that potential excitement. What are some of those other markets that you've interacted with and, and helped to develop? And how does that inform your work about choosing to, to work at Nori? Sure. So I look. We'll, we'll rewind back about 25 years. I'll, I'll go through the fast version, spare you guys the the full 25-year detailed history. But I, I got my start in capital markets and electronic trading about 25 years ago. I started in in 2000 with a company called CyberTrader, 
and it was almost immediately after the company had been acquired by Charles Schwab. And at that time, it was really the run-up to the dot-com bust. So we were still in the dot-com boom. And suddenly, through a combination of technology advancements and internet connectivity, you suddenly had software in the hands of retail investors that had really up until very recently been only available to professional traders and, and even recently only been made available to professional traders. So it was electronic trading was a pretty new thing, both for Wall Street and for Main Street. And so we built really sophisticated day trading technology with charting and smart order routing and things that, that really hadn't been seen before. And in in the context of that environment with the rapid change in technology and business practices you then had regulations that needed to catch up and so there was just a lot of change in a very short period of time and it was really interesting so that was my those are my formative years in electronic trading and then through just several opportunities from that time i was able to participate in other market transformations. So a lot of what happened in the US in the late 90s, early 2000s, subsequently went on to happen in other markets as they electronified. And a good example of that is in Canada. So uh, I was able to spend two years up in Canada, up in Toronto, launching a marketplace that at the time was called ChiX Canada. It's now NASDAQ Canada. And it really the same kind of, of technology and regulatory changes that unfolded in the U.S. unfolded in Canada. But in that instance, I had the benefit of, of the hindsight and knowledge and experience of having participated, uh, albeit as a much more junior guy, but having participated in that in the U.S. So had seen to some extent the movie before. Is, is this regulation about protecting retail investors? Is it like what's detailed in uh, Flash Boys, which you make an appearance in? by Michael Lewis about high frequency trading and about how disadvantaged retail people are? Is it something else? Regulation primarily related to, and yes, and, and so to answer the second question for us, some of these, this was the early stages of some of what was described in terms of the market structure in the Michael Lewis book, Flash Boys. So, so yes, uh, but at the time, it was regulation relating to, so it, you'll have to indulge me here for, for just a, a couple moments uh, okay. as I get into a little bit of the wonkish market microstructure discussion. So prior to, you know, call it late 90s, early 2000s, stocks that were companies that were listed on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ could only trade really on one market. And I'm oversimplifying it here, but there's, there's too much detail to get into otherwise. So just for the sake of argument, if you were a company listed on the New York Stock Exchange, your shares traded on the New York Stock Exchange. If you were a company that was listed on NASDAQ, which wasn't even an exchange at this time, your shares traded on NASDAQ. In the late 90s, early 2000s, as technology emerged that made it easier for stocks to be traded on a computer rather than on a physical exchange floor, you had new businesses that were launched uh, in the U.S., they were called electronic communication networks, or ECNs. In, in other parts of the world, they're known as alternative trading systems or proprietary trading systems, ATSs or PTSs. And what happened in the U.S. is there was suddenly just an explosion of these ECNs that came online to try to compete with New York and NASDAQ using superior 
higher performance technology, lower pricing, and direct market access where, for example, retail traders could start to access the market directly from their desktops. And so with the increase in the power and capabilities of the technology, the regulations were, were designed for a world in which people were filling out paper tickets, doing trading over the phone or physically on the floor of an exchange. And so as shares started to trade on all these different platforms, new problems emerged for the market. How do you determine what the best available price is if the shares are trading across four or five different platforms versus one? How do you ensure that brokers are routing their customers' orders to the marketplace that has the best available price? And so all of the regulatory changes that were happening around that time were to deal with these new and emergent competing marketplaces. So you're coming out of a regulatory environment. I mean, obviously, the, the U.S. Uh, equities market is probably the among the more regulated and more, I don't even know how to say it. Is it not one of the most credible financial institutions uh, on the planet, which probably doesn't bode well since it's had so many problems. But you've seen it go from being pretty nascent, interacting with the electronic environment to being something that is now pretty much I imagine all trading is digital at this point. So you witnessed the changeover from 56K basically to what it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that there uh, there were instances where I actually did take a paper ticket and slide it into the timestamp machine when I took a trade over the telephone. And there were pink tickets for sell orders and, and green tickets for buy orders, pastel, both of them. I, I don't know that that really functionally exists for the most part anymore. So it is, I think, essentially all electronic at this point, but but I am old enough to remember paper tickets. <laughs> so yeah, look, the, the, if you start with with the complements to the, to the US equities markets, they are the most liquid in the world, most sophisticated, in many ways, the most efficient. And so the, the proponents who, who think that everything works just fine would say, look, Investors have never had it better. They can get a trade execution done in less than a second. So instantaneously, essentially get the prices that they see on the screen. There's greater liquidity than there ever has been. There's more participants than there ever has been. And, And by and large, that's true. So when you look around the world, I would say that the U.S. equities markets are the leading equities markets in, in many regards. On the other side, and this is some of what's covered in Michael Lewis's book, uh, in the really arcane elements of the market at highly technical levels where milliseconds, microseconds, nanoseconds start to matter, there are some inefficiencies. And some of those are structural inefficiencies that are persistent. And some of that is actually a byproduct of the regulation. So, you know, one thing that I've learned in operating in a variety of different regulatory environments with different rule sets and different market structures is that it's really, really hard to solve for everything. So you have to look at who is your, who are your primary constituents? What are you optimizing for? And what are you willing to trade off? And uh, so while the U.S. equities market is, is the most liquid, probably the most efficient in the world, there definitely are some trade-offs and there's always room for improvement. And so a lot of, I would say, the work that I've done, at least in the equities markets, has been about creating more competition, 
price competition for the incumbent exchanges, technology competition, making things more transparent, more efficient. And, and I think that, that a lot of the businesses that I've been a part of have been successful in, in those types of endeavors. And the markets overall, I think, are, are arguably much more efficient today than they were 20 years ago, even with all of the emergence of technology in, in a market that's become so complicated that someone who you know is a trader in the 1970s, for example, might not even recognize the market today. How do you solve for fairness in a case where the the book details? You should read Flash Boys by Michael Lewis if you haven't. It's a it's a really fascinating tale here. But there's an arms race for nanoseconds, and high frequency traders, you know, are um, being able to extract rents essentially out of the financial system. Well, depends on how you view it, right? If you if you think that they're adding value, they're adding liquidity, they're being counterparty to many transactions that would otherwise have a much harder time being filled. And that's a valuable service. If you take a more grim view of it, they're basically creating phony transactions that they're able to manipulate, basically just to extract money from the financial system to the tune of billions, maybe more, I don't even know, a lot of money. But you're trying to design a system that doesn't create an arms race dynamic like that. What are you trading off? Are you giving something up for fairness? So the, the arms race part is an interesting question because I, I do think that there there is undeniably an arms race and, and even some of the high frequency trading firms and, and I think this this was if I recall correctly was maybe a point that was made in the book, the exchanges would often offer uh, what was called the new port. So just a network connection port. And it was a slightly faster port that shaved, you know, in, in some instances, maybe a, a, some milliseconds, then later microseconds, now probably nanoseconds off of the order and trade messaging time, which to average people is a completely meaningless amount of time. To high frequency traders, it can become an extremely important, important amount of time. But you reach a, a, if everybody has the same type of network connection, then there's no advantage and, and everybody's on a, on a level, at least for that certain category of, of trading firm that is directly connected via one of these network connections. But if the exchange offers a new network connection that's slightly faster, even if it's 100 microseconds or 100 nanoseconds faster, if only one of those firms steps up and uses that slightly faster connection, they have an edge over everybody else. And then everybody's forced to step up. And this is an interesting dynamic because the slightly faster connection that nobody actually really wants might be four times as expensive as the, the previous one. So, so long as one firm takes advantage of it and everybody then steps up, everyone's costs just went up and all they did is level is reach a new level of equilibrium. So they really, in the long run, get no advantage, but but do increase their costs. So so that's that's one of the. I don't know that there's an easy answer to that question because exchanges are commercial entities, and so of course they want to release new products and services that they can charge their customers for. And you know, trading firms are are incentivized to try to get whatever advantage that they can in the market. But one thing that I do want to note which I think is really interesting. And, and it's one of the things that informs some of my thinking, or at least my perspective as I am looking at and learning about the voluntary carbon market is some of what you touched on and, and whether high frequency trading is good or bad. And I think some of that got lost in the whole conversation around the Michael Lewis book, but 
if you really, it's a nuanced discussion. And in all of the market structure arguments in the U.S. and around the world, it, there are camps and, you know, even tribes, you might say. And some people are very anti-high-frequency trading. Other people think it's the best thing that's ever happened to the markets. And, and then there's maybe a range of people in between. And I, I think it's really important, and this was a lot of what I've tried to do in anything I've written or any time that I've spoken about these subjects, is to try to actually tease out what the different activities are that high frequency traders may engage in and what function and purpose they serve in the market. So true market making is, is I think, without doubt, value add to the market. You have a firm, for example, that's providing a bid and an offer at essentially all the time, providing liquidity, helping with price discovery, that's valuable. There are other practices like something called latency arbitrage where you just have firms that are just slightly faster than other firms and are able to, as the saying goes, quote unquote, pick off slower, less informed traders. And that's extractive. So there really isn't, you can't really necessarily argue that there's a lot of benefit being introduced to the market for those two practices. So you're essentially using the same computers, could be this, could be a single firm engaging in both of those different trading strategies, market making and latency arbitrage. And, and so at that level of discussion, the nuance becomes important because you have one firm doing two things, one value add to the market, one maybe extracted from the market. And when I look at a lot of the arguments now three months into the voluntary carbon market, there, there's a lot of similarities in terms of you know different ideologies, different camps, different tribes, and a lot gets lost in these very sort of monolithic arguments where there isn't any opportunity for nuance or there isn't enough opportunity given to nuance. So I would say that now having traversed a number of different markets from equities to derivatives to commodities to now carbon, those themes seem to continuously reemerge in, in each of those markets around the, the lack of nuance and the tribal infighting, which is, is pretty unfortunate. How does it translate, though, to come from pretty mature markets, even if you're doing things that are immature within pretty established uh, segments? And then you come to a space like Carbon and Nori for a long time, and I would say even still, our vision has been that the way to scale carbon removal is at some point, when appropriate, to have commodity scale infrastructure so that huge amounts of carbon can be sequestered permanently and just put away and dealt with and climate change can be reversed. Hence the name of the podcast, Reversing Climate Change. But we're, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. Most of these deals behave more like over-the-counter financial transactions where they're sort of like private bespoke deals. They're not taking place in uh, large order books like you might have experienced if you've traded crypto or if you've traded uh, stocks uh, on an electronic trading system. So what's the attraction here? Are you trying to get to that stage? Is it attractive because it's different and it's still much earlier than your previous experience? What's the what's the link there? So I think it's probably all of that. And I'll explain the market right now. It, it, and it maybe just as a as a proviso, there is no one market structure that fits all assets in all environments. And notwithstanding the availability of the technology today, what's called a matching engine, which is the, the technology that exchanges run, the, the matching model is called the central limit order book. That technology and, and that type of 
trade matching has now existed for call it 30 years. And it's widely adopted in equities trading, derivatives trading, so futures trading, options trading, currencies trading. Where you see it less is, for example, in bonds. And each asset, and, and also, by the way, for, for shares in private companies, there are a variety of assets where a central limit order book is just not the appropriate way to match orders. Sometimes it is more appropriate for it to be an over-the-counter bespoke product and trade where things do need to be configured or tailored based on the counterparties. So when I look at the, the voluntary carbon market, the products and the type of trading today, it feels more like an online marketplace, like an Amazon or an eBay versus let's say like Chicago Board Options Exchange or New York Stock Exchange. That's the state of the market today. And I think that that's the, the type of tra transactions that are being done are a function of A, the maturity of the, the markets and the technology deployed in the voluntary guard market, B, the level of education and understanding of the buyers in the market, and then C, the products that suppliers are making available to them. So as I've looked at some of the, the carbon credit projects that are available and, and who's buying them and what, what they're buying, it feels, the comparison that I've made is it, or the analogy that I've made is it feels a little bit more like buying a piece of real estate than it does buying a more standardized tradable product. So there's it's almost like buying a house. The the buyer kind of has to, in some cases, look at at the co-benefits, and it, it, there's a a feel factor about it. Do I, you know, do I see myself living in this house? Do I want to make meals in this kitchen? Do I feel like sitting in this living room and and watching a movie? It's a little bit more like that. There's maybe a more of an emotional, softer touch to it than I just want to trade this digital, fungible, standardized representation of carbon on a screen. So what's interesting to me and the part that's exciting is one, it's a bit of a departure from stuff I've worked on in the past. So the majority of my experience is exchange traded standardized products, fungible products. So doing something that's a little more bespoke, a little more tailored is new and interesting to me. But two, I think that the market can evolve towards some more standardization and things that are more tradable. I think it'll be a process, and I don't know that it necessarily means that those standardized tradable instruments will completely supplant what exists today in terms of maybe the more bespoke contracts and, and projects and things. But the opportunity to create a new market, create products that are tailored to and suit the market as it exists today is fun and interesting, interesting challenge. And then thinking about how all of the knowledge, experience, and expertise that I bring from more traditional capital markets to the team at Nori and, and how we can combine, you know, graft that onto all the carbon markets knowledge that the team here has and envision what the future could look like in terms of the development of Nori's marketplace specifically, but then the voluntary carbon, more, carbon market more broadly is pretty exciting. It's a massive opportunity. There's a lot of really, I think, interesting white space that we have to operate in to define and design products and, and services to both meet the market's needs and then and help them transition to a, a new, more efficient, more transparent, 
higher integrity marketplace than maybe we have today. Well, as recently as today, you were joking, you even shared an uh, XKCD comic about the proliferation of standards. And I'm curious if you've seen how standards have consolidated in, in other industries that you've worked in. Granted, I imagine some of these standards are actual proprietary financial products that are being designed by a for-profit company. So the dynamic is a little bit different than carbon. But how do we deal with this within carbon where there's tens of different standards bodies that are all competing for influence, for what kind of additionality or permanent standards should be codified for the entire carbon removal or even voluntary carbon market sector as a whole. There's sort of a a really huge amount of these things. And even as someone who works in this space, I find it difficult to keep up with all of them and all of the details of all of them. I mean, frankly, it's a full-time job or the full-time job of an entire department to participate in and set these standards. So what might you predict for such a proliferation, given your experience in other parallel industries? Sure. So I'll give maybe a couple of examples, one where I think the industry managed to get it together globally and and develop a common standard that really has functioned extremely well globally. Uh, And then and then maybe some examples of, of some some either standards that are in the process of being developed or situations where I don't know that you'll ever see a common international standard. So one standard that that is pretty common internationally across virtually, I think, all financial markets at this point is something called the Financial Information Exchange Protocol, or FIX, in the industry parlance. And so FIXProtocol.org is a nonprofit, and they publish a specification that describes how computers essentially via API can talk to each other in the financial market. So trading firms talking to their brokerages, brokerages talking to the exchange. So how the computers communicate back and forth with each other. And going back to that early stage of the development of the electronic markets that I was talking about earlier, when you had this proliferation of markets, when they first started up and there was no standard, each of those different ECNs or alternative trading systems and and the exchanges themselves all had different API specifications. And so, and some of them were proprietary and they had IP around them. And if you wanted to use them, you might have to license them and pay a royalty. So if you rewind back to that state of the markets, if you were some sort of actor in that market that needed to trade on multiple different venues, That meant that your technology team had to read, understand, and implement each specification for each of those training counterparties that was heterogeneous. And that just created inefficiency and operational overhead and cost for for everybody. And the only firms that really benefited from that were the incumbents that you sort of had to, you had no choice. You had to go and use their protocol because you had to access that market for either the products that traded there or to access the liquidity. And so the industry finally just decided to get together and try to deal with that. And they created this thing called fix. And now pretty much every financial exchange in the world and and banks and brokerage firms, everyone uses fix to talk to each other. And that just created a common set of standards that removed all that inefficiency. That's great. That's global. And 
it's an arguably amazing success. If we look at maybe some examples where we haven't seen such such success, one that is is you know maybe more mature, but it's pretty clear that you're not going to get to a common standard is is just the the rules around equities trading. So equities are a pretty well known and understood type of product today. There are, you know there have been there's been equity ownership in in stocks now for what a good 600 years or something like that. And so you know equity shares have come a long way. But if you look at, if you were to try to point to a global standard for equities rules and regulations, there is no such thing. Just in Canada, you have the different, each of the different provinces has their own rules. In the US, you've at least got one regulator, the SEC. In other markets you have, but, but in the US you also have the CFTC. So you have two different, you have two different federal regulators that, that regulate different parts of the market. You have other markets where you have one regulator that regulates equities, derivatives, so multiple different products. And then the rules across, even within, let's say Canada, across the, the different provinces may not be 100% aligned. Across countries, they're definitely not 100% aligned. And so there really is no notion of a global set of standards around equities regulation. There are international organizations, one's called IOSCO, and that's a, a group of, you can think about that as like a, a, a meta-regulator group where all of the national regulators get together and, and talk and try to develop standards and create efficiency. So there is some effort to coordinate, but there definitely is not a, a universal standard. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. There are just too many competing interests, different histories and peculiarities in each of the markets. So for anyone operating on an international basis, they, as you noted, they have to have a team that's familiar with all the rules and regulations in each of the markets that they want to operate in. And that's just the cost of doing business. Hmm. Then if we take maybe one more, let's say more recent example, just, just prior to joining Nori, I spent four years building a CFTC regulated futures exchange and clearinghouse for derivatives so futures contracts on crypto commodities. So Bitcoin is an example and, and Ether is another example. And in the US, the crypto spot market for Bitcoin, let's say, is not regulated by the CFTC or the SEC. If you want to operate a Bitcoin exchange, you have to go from state to state and get what's called a money transmission license and register with FinCEN as a money services business. And so you have a heterogeneous set of rules and regulations in the different states and territories that you have to comply with. The SEC has taken a view that a lot of crypto assets are securities, but there aren't and, and there's been a lot of enforcement actions uh, and there's been some settlements, but, but the, one of the main arguments in the crypto world right now is that, that the rules are not clear enough and different people take different views on that. Some people think they're pretty clear. Other people think they're not clear at all. And there's been no shortage of draft legislation. I think there's four or five different proposals at this point working their way through Congress to try to create clarity or, or, and even within the regulators, Hester Peirce, for example, at the SEC has proposed a, an environment where uh, it would be essentially like a sandbox pilot type program 
So it's just another example of an industry that there's new technology, new business practices, new products, regulations trying to catch up, and there is no current standard uh, either within the regulatory environment or at, at a policy level. And you just have a lot of different people with different views trying to help solve that problem. And, and so there are a variety of industry groups that have formed in the cryptocurrency world where commercial actors have gotten together and said, okay, since, since no one is defining this formally <clears throat> in terms of the, the federal regulators or, or, or even Congress, we're just going to set out a set of principles or a set of rules that we all agree to voluntarily contribute to and, and adhere to. And that's all well and good, but it doesn't create any sort of regulatory clarity. And I definitely have seen some of that in the voluntary carbon market in terms of just efforts to, to try to create some sort of standard, uh, but without any, I would say, formal blessing that ensures that companies can confidently operate in accordance with a standard and, and not face regulatory or, or commercial risk, it, it's they're, it's hard to support any one of those. And then finally, I would just say, I've, I've seen some calls for, we need a global regulatory framework for carbon. And given the experience with other asset classes and the, the you know, either internal disagreement within countries across regulators or then disagreement across countries, uh, I find that to be a, a pretty uh, in some ways, naive point of view that we're, we're going to get a global regulatory standard for carbon. Well, there's so many different angles to, to go with, but I guess I'll go with the, the most recent here. I also have the thought that maybe too much standard setting can ruin some potential for innovation. I think when you're in a room and too many people agree too much, I feel called as my duty to maybe throw a little bit of a monkey wrench and try and say like, actually, here's a counterexample or here's a spot where the, these ideas while they sound good in this case don't work as well here i think if you get everyone in a room to agree about everything that's part of i'm going to make a most ross of ross connections here is that not like the un security council where you know russia china and the us are never always going to agree especially not right now so they just veto the proposals of the other countries and there's really not a, a process of like agreeing to something in some cases maybe be worthwhile to have different spheres of influence. God, am I just reinventing the Cold War right now? But surely that might work better, at least for decision-making, than just having a security council where everyone has that same type of authority. Wow, what did I just get myself into? Good luck, Matt. Uh, yeah, you. so you'd happily find yourself comfortably at home in a lot of the debate uh, in other regulatory circles. So there are really, I, I think if you distill it down, there are probably two different approaches to regulation. One is called a rules-based approach and the other, is, the other is called a principles-based approach. Rules-based approach is fairly prescriptive. So, you know, the, the rules are written pretty specifically, highly descriptive in some cases about what you can and can't do. And then principles-based is less prescriptive and really lays out a set of things that the market is trying, that the rules are trying to achieve or trying to prevent. And there's a lot more latitude in, in that case for actors to decide what adheres to those, those principles. The problem with a rules-based approach is that 
one, it, cr it creates a lot of constraints, and, and so there's less room for creativity. But almost counterintuitively, it does create some room for creativity because if you do something that isn't explicitly prohibited by the rules, you can say, well, there was no rule that you can point to that says I can't do that, so therefore I can. And unfortunately, that happens often enough when you have really smart people that spend a lot of time thinking about the rules and how to game them or, or circumvent them, uh, especially if there is an edge in there and they can make money doing it. So you have to create ever more rules to make it ever tighter and ever more explicit. And, and then that just, you know, creates less and less room for innovation uh, and creativity. On the other hand, if it's more principles based, uh, you, you may have a lot more of a gray area, but a lot more room for creativity. And, and maybe to come back to just a concrete example where you can see the consequences of, let's say, a rules-based environment, I, I would ca characterize the U.S. equities market as a rules-based environment. And it's very constraining around what exchanges can and can't do from a pricing standpoint, from an access standpoint, from the, the ways in which the exchange can operate, what order types they're permitted to allow or not allow. And so if you look at the way exchanges compete in the U.S., equities market, it really isn't anymore about a lot of creativity. It's about pricing in ever finer subpenny increments and creating really complicated fee structures with all kinds of different complicated tiers that create economic incentives. I mean, the exchanges have economists on staff who spend a lot of time designing these really complicated pricing schemes. And, and that's where innovation happens in these really complicated pricing schemes or at the level that I was describing earlier, where you're talking about shaving now nanoseconds off of order and trade message time response times. So, so that's what really amounts to innovation and creativity in the U S equities markets. And, and that's, that's not great. It's harder to, to come up with something new. It's, it's not to say that, that no one can, and obviously, uh, if you've read Flash Boys, you know that IEX did come up with a new invention that was within the constraints of the rules, uh, but it was really precisely targeted. And even at that, there there was some resistance to and and, and an argument that some of what IEX was doing was not compliant with the rules, and and that was a big part of the battle about IEX's exchange application. So. I don't know that there is really, it's it's all a matter of trade-offs and what are you trying to optimize for? So, you know, the the state of the UN and, and post-Cold War, you don't have uniformity of opinion and that may or may not be desirable depending on where you sit. And I would say the same applies for regulation. Oh, yeah, those trade-offs are really profound. A rules-based regime seems to assume an end of history almost where there's probably not a lot of room left for innovation and the job of the regulator is to manage the existing system. I mean, how much room is there for innovation still in the equities market? I know those are famous last words, but also are we not at that point? Like how much could really be done that would really blow everyone's minds? But I know everyone who has ever predicted that usually has to eat their words within a couple of years at least. So is that not, is it just not appropriate to, to be rules-based? Are there places that we're pretty much done innovating and can just settle into a technician-based view of the law and people are just administering it? 
Well, I, I don't know. I guess it, you know, in, in the world of science, wasn't it maybe the late 1800s, early 1900s when they thought that pretty much all major discoveries had happened and there wasn't much more to learn? As it's coming out of my mouth, I'm like, this is such an obvious thing to just dunk on. But dunk away. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Plate tectonics is pretty recent too. It's like only a couple decades. Exactly. So, so the I would say it, it, it presumes that one regulators can know everything and that the market's static and that technology doesn't evolve or business practices don't evolve. And, and that's just not ever going to be true. I think it also fails to recognize that there are different actors in the markets who have different objectives. A, an asset manager or a pension fund has a different set of priorities and a different set of objectives than a market maker but both of those are important actors in the market. And so if you're an exchange or a regulator and you're trying to design a market, who are you designing it for? Are you designing it for the end investor? Are you designing it who, who has a certain set of objectives and, and certain preferences? Or are you designing it for the market maker that has a completely different set of objectives and preferences? And the art and I think challenge for regulators is that you have to try to strike that balance thoughtfully and some everybody's going to be nobody's ever 100 percent happy in that negotiation which i guess you know is the definition of a good outcome uh but it but it's just it's an ongoing battle in fact right now there's a new set of proposals really fundamentally proposing to pretty fundamentally change u.s equities market structure and there's a lot of people very upset about that there are some people who are very happy about it and think it's you know 20 years overdue so it's you take all of that and then recognize that regulation by definition has to be a slow and, and conservative process and, and almost, you know, Hippocratic oath, do no harm type of environment. Uh, and it's just really hard when technology and business practices evolve pretty quickly, but then you can look for opportunities to, to innovate in different ways. And I would say if we want to point to a concrete example of that, the exchange traded fund or ETF is a relatively new invention. So that's, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with the way exchanges match orders and, and create trades. It's a new product that can list on an exchange. And it, you know, in, in the case of, let's say the spiders ETF that allows an investor to get access to the entirety of the S and P 500 index through one share or one type of share rather than having to buy individual shares in all the individual constituent companies. That that's an interesting innovation. Another would be the GLD ETF or the, the, the gold, it's the, the gold ETF. So prior to the invention of GLD, if you wanted to own gold, you could buy bars and store them in a vault. You could order coins, have them shipped to your house and put them in your safe or bury them in your backyard. When GLD was invented, suddenly you could buy shares, that were ownership, partial ownership of a trust that held gold. And you could buy those in the context of your, your, your typical brokerage account, be that you know, E-Trade or Fidelity. So it does feel like there's still opportunities for innovation. You know, it, just, it may come from places that you don't necessarily expect. And that's, so taking this all back to some of the things I find really exciting about voluntary carbon market is we don't have really clearly defined regulations. There is a lot of room for commercial innovation, creation of standards, development of new products. Market structure can evolve. 
And we don't have that really prescriptive rules-based set of constraints right now. So that creates a lot of opportunity for flexibility and creativity, and that's fantastic. The risk is that it also creates the opportunity for bad actors. And we've definitely seen some of that in terms of some of the double counting issues or some of the issues about even outright fraud and carbon credits. And so, so again, it's, it's a, a set of trade-offs. So, you know, you want to be careful what you wish for. If you wish for regulation and it comes very quickly and thoughtfully, you may end up with a cure that's worse than the disease. But at the same time, if the industry doesn't to some degree police itself, then you create an opportunity for bad actors that can sully the reputation of the entire industry. So, so neither of those two ends of that spectrum are, are places that you want to be. You could just give me something easy to walk away with. You got to give me some, some gray middle ground hell I have to carry around with me, Matt. That, well, if, if you want to work in market structure, I think you have to be, you have to have a high tolerance for pain and, and ambiguity. Yeah, there's so many layers of, of ambiguity in trying to design a, a product here that makes sense. And I think trying to design something that is perfect on every metric, I think we've seen that in carbon markets too. If you want everything to be perfectly additional, perfectly permanent and all these things, it means your scale is pretty pretty small and is likely to remain pretty small for for a while and inexpensive so you can have everything you want you just have to pay a price on it on a different dimension than maybe you expected you can be a little bit more open-ended on on how much those other things matter and to what extent and you will have a corresponding updating of those other sliders but it doesn't just seem like you can get everything you want for a cheap price and great availability at all times it seems like one has to choose what is actually important here to reverse climate change. And it really isn't that simple. I think people of good faith can disagree about where those sliders should be. I think that that is an absolutely critical point. You can reach what you might define as perfection that becomes utterly irrelevant. And so you can have your perfect, precious little thing that nobody cares about. That's not a good outcome. And as someone who's a relative newcomer to this market, I can say that, you know, not that it's unique to the market, the arguments and, and the different tribal battles and things that are going on, but the industry should ask itself, what is that doing for people like me who are relative newcomers? Now, I've decided to join a company and, and jump in with both feet, but if I'm someone sitting at a real economy corporation and I'm starting down the path of the carbon journey, and trying to understand what the challenges are, what the, the opportunities are, what the products are, what the solutions are. And, you know, I, I, I open up the, the cover to the market and to see a bunch of people screaming at each other about highly technical arcane topics. Is that something that is going to invite me to, to come in and want to participate? Probably not. So for the market, I think one of the things that we, if the goal of the market is to remove carbon from the atmosphere, stabilize the climate, reverse climate change, then we need to bring as many people into the tent as possible. We wanna have a big tent approach here. And you can't do that if everybody's infighting and arguing and one-upping. It, it just doesn't work. 
So if we just start from the standpoint of we want to assume good intent, we want to identify the good actors, we want to support each other, let's grow the market. Let's make it easier for people to interact with the market, to navigate it, to understand the products. Let's be creative about removing points of friction and make the market big and important and then we achieve the impact that everybody, I think, that's that's spending a good portion of their time and careers in this this new market is trying to accomplish. And and that would be, you know, that's just that's my frame of mind when I come into this. I, I want to meet people. I want to learn more about the market. And want to be collaborative and, and not ideological or tribal. It's a good goal. Definitely a good starting point. Well, we're really glad you're here with us. You bring so much interesting experience for us and the industry as it scales. Thanks for being here, Matt. And if you liked the show, by the way, we're going to be doing another episode with Matt here that's more applied and with a special guest coming soon. So thank you again, Matt. Thanks for having me, Ross. It's been a pleasure to be here and it's uh, been a pleasure the last three months with the team here. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.